thank you, Innes. Chosen. I'm scarred for life. Happened eight years old in West Yorkshire at my primary school when we stood in two lines and were to be selected for who was in which side for handball. And I was the last but one in the whole class to be chosen. And the guy who was, even at the age of eight or nine, going to be the professional footballer or something, sort of looked at the two people who were left, of which I was one, and said, I suppose we'll have Atkins. No enthusiasm whatsoever. It is an awful feeling not to be chosen. Some of our good friends adopted children when it became clear after some years that they couldn't have children of their own. And as these children grew, they explained to them that unlike normal children, to use their language, who'd arrived at birth, they were specially chosen because their parents had particularly chosen them. So just as not to be chosen is an awful feeling, to be chosen is a wonderful feeling. Uh, you, like me, probably receive letters from time to time. They're addressed to you. They've got the right name, the right initial, the right postcode. And they tell you as you open it up in all its glorious technicolor that you have been chosen to receive 50,000 pounds. All you have to do is to accept the offer of a look round a timeshare or open a new pension plan and you will be entered into their prize draw and you're virtually guaranteed to win this money. It's junk mail. And I put such, some, such stuff in the bin without another thought because I don't believe ultimately that A, I'm going to win £50,000 and I don't believe ultimately that you can be chosen by a computer when you're selected with one million other people on the mailing list. And there's an ulterior motive. I'm selected in the hope that I'll do something or buy something. Lose that possibility and you're dropped like a hot brick. Sometimes what looks like being chosen isn't. The Jehovah's Witnesses this is not an anti-Jehovah's Witness thing, by the way. It's a historical description. The Jehovah's Witnesses, particularly in the early decades of their existence in North America, had a particular doctrine of chosenness. They believed quite literally in those references in the book of Revelation to 144,000 people who would share the new heaven with God. And while there were less than 144,000 of them, it was fine. But as they went about their door knocking and their evangelism, which was extremely effective for a long time, it suddenly became clear that when the 144,000th and first person became a Jehovah's Witness, what did you do? And they began to then talk in the earlier part of the 20th century and right through to the era after the First World War and before the Second World War in their writings that it was the best 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses who would inherit the new heaven and the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses would inherit the new earth. Which is one of the reasons for the laudable 
and sometimes frenetic and very often for many people unwanted activity of Jehovah's Witnesses even to this day. Because ultimately, you see they move, they almost had to move to a situation where it's not about who is chosen, it's on what merits are you chosen. Who scores the most brownie points? Now to the crucial question. When God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit discussed together within the Holy Trinity about the salvation of all humankind and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived among us and died a death upon the cross, defeating death forever. How many were chosen to benefit in that death? How many were chosen to have their sins washed away? How many were chosen to inherit eternal life through faith in him? And for the Wesleys, the founders of the Methodist movement, in which we stand, part of a global and worldwide church, their response was, all of us. In Christ, the chosen becomes the all. All for Christ and Christ for all. For all, for all, my Saviour died, for all my Lord is crucified, sang the first hymn. Now this is not a long sermon today, you'll be hugely relieved. We spent deliberately more time than normal and quite rightly with our guests. But it's been one of those long-running conversations in Christian theology what those who followed John Calvin called predestination, or what's more technically known as electing grace, and what other Christians, and particularly those in the Methodist tradition, have called prevenient grace, grace that goes before. And it concerns the nature and the extent of those who have been chosen to be saved. We're right into that discussion when we read a passage like Kath read for us that includes words like, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Has God predestined some to be saved and some to be damned before the foundation of the world? A few have held that view, including people like the great St. Augustine and more particularly people who followed him. To a lesser extent than we actually think, John Calvin, but most certainly some of those who came after him. It's called double predestination. Not only does God predestine those who will be saved, but by definition, therefore, predestines those who will not. John Wesley had no truck with that doctrine whatsoever. He often echoed the statement found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, which I know is on the tip of your tongue, but I'll read it for you. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of his truth. And so Martin Luther very often said, God saves whom he wills. 
and replied the early Arminians who so influenced Methodism, yes, Martin, but God wills that everyone be saved. Now, does that mean that everyone will be saved eventually, so-called universalism, that no matter what you do, no matter how resistant you are to God's will, eventually, somehow, God's will that you will be saved will win out, and therefore, in a sense, all our talk about salvation is ultimately going to happen anyway. No. Methodists are not technically universalists at all. Methodists believe and still do that when Jesus Christ dies on the cross it is for all people and all people can therefore benefit from his saving death. They're included, they're chosen. But that the benefit of Jesus dying on the cross is that every one of us on this planet is given the capacity to accept or reject the offer of the Christian gospel. Prevenient grace, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ before we knew anything of it, before we could respond to it, can and often does lead to what Wesley called saving grace. It prepares a person and prepares a way for them to open their lives to God in response to Christ dying for them. It doesn't mean that every person enters it or chooses to enter it. And it was another reformer, Philip Melanchthon, much underrated, who when debating with Luther and Luther said to him, God saves whom he wills, turned round and said, no, Martin, my friend, God saves whoever wishes to be saved. And you can only say that if you believe that Christ has died for all and everyone is chosen into that contract. So put very simply, the Calvinist believes electing grace is given to some and cannot be resisted. And the Wesleyan believes prevenient grace is given to all but can be resisted. So that when we say, when we meet Jesus Christ and we say, Jesus, I choose you, I make you my Lord. All the angels in heaven rejoice. But they know the truth that we only come to know as we grow deeper and further into faith. That actually, we did not choose Jesus. He chose us. And then when we chose him, we begin to realize that he chose us. From before we were conceived, from our birth, God chose us. And when we choose him too, something wonderful happens. For the chosen ones realize for the first time the gracious, prevenient nature of their choosing. You're not chosen because you're part of the first team and good at sport at eight years old. You're not chosen because you happen to be around at the same time, when the right time when God felt in a good mood. You're not chosen because of what you can give God back as if he needs it. You're not chosen because you're part of an elect few. 
You're not chosen because you're better or cleverer or more meritorious or more hardworking than anybody else. And you're not chosen because your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents were Christians too. You were chosen because he chose you. Because of the universal scope of the death of Christ that included even you and all of yous and all of us, in spite of us, known and loved, loved and known, restored, redeemed, forgiven. Limitless grace that needs to be responded to. So don't take, don't take this word and wonder lightly. The Lord God chose you from creation. The Son of God chose you with the spilling of his blood on the cross. And the Holy Spirit now chooses those who respond and say, yes, Lord, to be vessels of continuing grace. Grace in your world, grace in your work, grace among your family, agents of grace and peace like we've heard about this morning. Now, of course, we can choose not to be chosen, but I hope you won't do that. And I hope you'll come all the more to rejoice in the goodness and the saving power of God. Amen.